We resume our study of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians, and so our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 34. That's page 961 if you want to use uh, the Bible there in your seats. Paul has begun to address some of the issues of worship and practice within the church in Corinth. And as he comes to this passage, he begins to get to the heart of the matter. They have grown so spiritualized in their perspective that they have lost sight of the good news of the bodily resurrection. And so let's attend to what God's Word says to His people in Corinth, to His people today, from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 34. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. But in Christ, but if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? 
Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A glorious and challenging and important passage. Let's ask that the Lord would bless our consideration of it together. Lord, we have heard your word read. Now we would have it read us. As we sit under it, pastor and congregation, would you work in us so that you might work through us to those that you would have hear this good news? Would we hear it first, work by your spirit to show us the truth, to change us by your truth? Lord, would all that I have to say that is unworthy of you be forgotten, pass away, We know that your word will not return void. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever argued with a GPS? It says, you have arrived at your destination, and you look around and say, no, I haven't. Or if not a GPS, at least you've gotten some directions from the guy at the gas station and you get to the end of those directions and you think either I misheard him or he or she did not know what they were talking about. I can remember one particular instance. It was when we moved here to New Hampshire. We stayed our first night in New Hampshire at a hotel down in Manchester and then we had the moving truck to come to the house that we were renting from a couple in this congregation that we had never seen before. It's on Dover Road in Pembroke. The thing about Dover Road in Pembroke is almost no one, including the GPS, knows where that is. The post office can't find it. It's If you go up here and then you go right towards 393 on what's Route 9 or 4, that's technically Dover Road. But the GPS took us past the house that we were supposed to be renting and ended us in a vacant lot with nothing sitting there but a trailer. And so we had two choices. We could accept what the GPS said, which would mean that we had been lied to by this elder in the church and his wife, or that this was what they really had for us and that we had to make this our home. Obviously, those weren't real choices. So we called the family and said, hey, where is this house? What does it look like? And we're able to backtrack despite what the GPS said. The problem with the Corinthians, though, is that they're not arguing with the GPS. But they're agreeing with it, despite the truth. They've been guided by Roman religious belief that there is no physical afterlife. They've rejected the bodily resurrection. They've come to believe that the end of the Christian life is purely spiritual. That one day they will be disembodied and that will be their eternal future. And so what they are seeking to live now is an anticipation of that. And so this over-spiritualized view has caused them to go into all sorts of trouble. It's what's caused them to 
over-focus on the spiritual gifts because, well, they're going to be spiritual people. It's called, caused them to devalue the importance of the body when it comes to sex and marriage. It's caused them to disconnect the way that they treat one another from what they believe, holding on to the gospel and celebrating the Lord's Supper, while their brothers and sisters go hungry and thirsty. They think that they've arrived where spiritual people with spiritual gifts anticipating a spiritual end because there is no resurrection. Paul has been chopping off multiple branches of this pernicious weed, but he now digs down to the root and points out the reality, the necessity of the resurrection to the gospel and the Christian life. The work Paul is doing here doesn't just correct the Corinthians, but it benefits us today. Now, the church today and multiple churches around the world may confess the Apostles' Creed. And in the Apostles' Creed, we regularly state we believe in the resurrection of the body. But we live in a time where outside of the church, many believe that life is limited to the physical and bodily now. That this is as good as it gets. What the world has to offer out there, what money, economics, and politics offers is as good as it gets. And in reaction, many Christians have a view of salvation in the future that is limited to the spiritual. That while we might believe that Jesus rose from the dead, what we're anticipating is a disembodied future as souls in heaven, and that's what we're longing for. Can't wait to get out of this world. But Paul reminds the Corinthians, as he reminds us, that the good news isn't good news without the resurrection of the dead, without the bodily resurrection. And so this morning, along with the Corinthians, we are called to consider what does the resurrection mean for the Christian? What does the resurrection mean for God himself? And how are we to live in light of the resurrection? First, what does the resurrection mean for the Christian? To begin to answer that for the Corinthians, Paul reminds them of, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? He draws their attention to the good news that they heard, what he preached, what he had heard, what he preached, and what they believed as the basis of their belief that they are Christians. And so in verses 3 through 5, he lays this out, and this is something wonderful. In verses 3 through 4, 3 through 5, Paul is laying out the essentials of the message he shared with them, and in so doing is giving us probably the earliest creedal statement of the church. The format of these words is in kind of a, a sing-song, in a parallel, poetic, that speaks of the way that people would learn things that they need to remember. If you know from growing to school, you know, what it is to say the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And to the, it has kind of that sing-song. And that's here in the passage. And that means that in the 25 years between when Paul heard of the gospel and was converted, and when he wrote this letter, that the church had already made these statements of faith, adopted them widely, and would have been recognizable to the Corinthians. The essential truth that Jesus died for their sins and rose again from the dead and appeared to Cephas and the Twelve, had already been established as creedal orthodoxy within 25 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
And so Paul reminds them that this was the message that he received, that he gave to them, and was the basis of their hope. This is what it means to be a Christian. And then he kind of illustrates it through his own life, that his very sense of who he is, is according to this message, is according to this reality. He states that though he was one untimely born, and the language there is really stark and actually kind of ugly. You might have a note in your Bible that the direct translation would be stillborn or abortion because that's the way people talked about Paul because of his physical deformities, his lack of stature. And you could imagine the Corinthians who cared so much about style and poise and charisma using that against him. And he says, yet as one untimely born, the resurrected Christ appeared to me and saved me by his grace, despite me being an enemy of the church. The resurrection of Christ drew him out of rebellion into obedience, established him not only as one forgiven, but one commissioned to share that good news. He worked harder than the other apostles, not because he was better than them, that's not what he's saying, but because he was so weak and so behind. that He worked hard, and yet not him, but God's grace in him him. Paul's saying the grace by which I am what I am is according to this truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. What it means to be a Christian is to be one transformed by the truth of the resurrection. And so you Corinthians, you can't rip out the resurrection and claim to be Christians and claim to be spiritual people. You can't be a spiritual people while denying the bodily resurrection. It's like they're trying to renovate a house. And you know what it is to renovate when you go to a big project. One of the things we often want to do is we often want to remove or at least move a wall. But before you take the sledgehammer or the sawzall to that wall, what do you need to establish? Is this a load-bearing wall? If I cut this beam, is the whole house going to come down around me? And the problem is, they've already got the sledgehammer going, and Paul is saying, you are about to bring the whole house down around you. He outlines this in verses 12 through 18. He's saying, if you take away the resurrection, you take away what it is to be a Christian. For is, there is no resurrection of the dead. Well, Jesus died and was raised, so there's no resurrection of Jesus. And if there's no resurrection of Jesus then what we've been saying about God is untrue. You've taken away not only your claim to follow a risen Savior, you've taken away your message that God raised him from the dead. Later in Romans 1, chapter 4, Paul says it was the resurrection of Christ which was God's attestation that he was the Son of God. And if he isn't raised, then therefore they're not forgiven of their sins. They are still in their sins. Because the resurrection was God's vindication of Jesus' sacrifice as acceptable in his sight. Otherwise, his death was meaningless. And if there's no forgiveness of sins for the Corinthians, then that means that their brothers and sisters who held on to Christ have been lost. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The NIV translates perished as lost there, and I think that's a helpful translation. It's saying they're beyond hope because the only hope for them was Christ. And if Christ isn't who he said he was and didn't do what he said he did, then they're beyond hope. 
if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if Christ is only about this life, obeying him in the here and now, listening to his teachings for now, if this life is all that there is, then we are most to be pitied. Paul says you cannot live in this house. You cannot be the church of God. You cannot be Christians by removing this central beam, the resurrection. We can have confidence in the resurrection because because it's been the basis for their understanding of who they were from the beginning. It's the basis of their forgiveness of sins. It's the basic of the mission to proclaim to others good news. And without the resurrection, they lose all of those things. Paul is telling them, he's telling us that Christians are resurrection people. The Corinthians risked losing their identity as Christians by losing the resurrection. But because Jesus rose, because his rising from the dead was the foundation of the good news that their sins could be forgiven, then we can trust that we are forgiven. We can trust that therefore we are accepted by God and therefore have a sure hope of resurrection for ourselves and to those who would receive the message that God has entrusted us with. The resurrection is central to what it is to be a Christian. That's what it means for us. But what does the resurrection mean for God? We may tend to look at the resurrection as about us. And some people might charge us as believing pie in the sky that someday we rise again from the dead because it's too painful to think that this life is all there is. And we should take that charge seriously. But the word doesn't just treat resurrection through the perspective of what we want and what we need. It says something about who God is. The resurrection is not just central to God's plan to rescue us, but it is also God's purpose to glorify himself. As verses 21 through 28 continue to explain the necessity and the importance of the resurrection, the passage takes the attention off of the Corinthians and fixes their gaze on Jesus and God the Father. Their relationship is, what is Jesus doing? And what does this relate to God's reign and and, and, and the passing back and forth of the kingdom? And and the words can get a little bit messy there. But, But what the picture that he's trying to present is, is what God is doing in the Father and the Son is for the accomplishment of God's will for his glory. That the resurrection isn't just for us, it's a vindication, it is a confirmation, it is a declaration of who God is. First of all, it glorifies God in establishing the truth that God finishes what he starts. Paul says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And while first fruits has all kinds of Old Testament imagery, Paul's not building on that so much for the Romans here, who are probably lacking in their understanding of the nuances. But they are gardeners. They do know what a vineyard is. And the first fruit is merely that. It is the first fruit that you get from the garden. It's the first thing that's ready to be harvested with the anticipation that there's much more to be harvested after that. And so Paul is saying, Jesus, being risen from the dead, is established on the promise of God that we too, like him, will be raised. 
that Jesus is the first fruits of the same harvest of which we will be a part. For me this season, the first fruit of my garden was a little pepper. It's been a hard growing season, at least for me. I don't know about you. We've lacked some of the sunshine. It's been cooler and wetter than most summers. And so all of these um, things that we planted, some peppers, but primarily tomatoes, have not looked so good. And so a few weeks ago, this one little pepper finally turned red, and I was so excited. I didn't even get into the house before I ate it. I was just so excited because... Why? Because I doubted that there would come any more after that. But it, it, it showed to me that despite the rain, maybe something more would come. And in the following weeks, we finally have had a few tomatoes. It gave me hope that there might be a further harvest. But I'll be honest, in the back of my mind, I'm asking, yeah, but is the weather going to turn? Is there going to be enough sunshine to turn the rest of the tomatoes? That skunk got our pumpkin I don't know if the other one's going to survive. But God is not the ever-changing weather. He is the God who made all things by the word of his power, whose word is his bond. He is the faithful God, the one whose word promised a Messiah, the one whose word promised forgiveness through that Messiah. Our resurrection is the promised outcome of what God promised in Christ. The pepper has turned, and not a single tomato will fall to the ground unripened. Because what God has started in Christ, he will bring to completion for his people who are in Christ. God will finish what he has started, he is faithful. The resurrection of the dead is also a confirmation of God's commitment to fix what is broken. Through Adam's sin, death and destruction entered the world. Verse 21, for as man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And on one hand, he's pointing out the reality that if it was possible for death to enter into the world through one man, so the hope of life in Christ can come through one man. But also as he invokes Adam, he reminds us of the destruction that sin has wrought. The most obvious being death. The Corinthians don't like the idea of a bodily resurrection, but they are following the narrative of their Roman past, not the narrative of Scripture. Because what sin and death destroy is what God originally said was good. What God has promised to restore, what God has promised to make right. And so for there to not be a bodily resurrection is for God to leave some aspect of his distorted, destroyed creation unrestored and unfixed. Because when God made the heavens and the earth and he made the stars and the sky, he made the oceans and the land, he said it is good. And when he completed the creation of the universe, crowning it with the creation of Adam and Eve, he said it was very good. And you know how he made us? As spirits floating in the ether? No. He made us as embodied souls to live in relationship with him. 
for the future of God's restoration to leave us as disembodied souls is to allow death to have the last word, to say what I have broken is more powerful than God's ability to fix. The power and commitment of God, his ability to restore what is broken, necessitates the restoration of humanity to be what he made it to be, bodily, incarnate men and women in the flesh, in real relationship with him. Lastly, it speaks of the vindication of his dominion. Verses 24 and 28 are talking about this interplay of the father and the son. I don't have time to get into the grammar of all of it because we would be here too long. But let me try to summarize what's happening in those verses. It is explaining that the Son has been given the task, the chosen one of God, the Son of God, the one given this title of king, has been given the power and authority by the Father to crush the rebellion. To go and exert the authority of the true king and bring order out of chaos. To bring submission out of rebellion. And so the job of Jesus, the incarnate son of God, is to bring victory over sin, over the evil one, and over death. And say, God, this world that belongs to you, this world that is yours, this world that you reign over, I hand back over to you fully submitted, fully restored and corrected to you as the king. And then at that moment, Jesus will have fulfilled his task, giving over to his father the kingdom so that God would be all in all. God cannot be worshipped as the God of all creation, as the God of all the universe, as the king of kings and lord of lords if there is any aspect of his dominion that continues outside of the scope of his authority. And so Jesus comes to destroy death, the last enemy. At his return, death shall finally be undone in the vindication of the dominion of God the Father. All rebellion, all denial, all subversion of his reign will be no more. What That victory that began on Easter Sunday will be consummated at the resurrection when death not only holds not Christ, but cannot hold God's people. There are some that would claim to believe in the God of the Bible without believing in the resurrection of the dead. And I would contend that what Paul is saying here is that you cannot deny the bodily resurrection without denying who God is. Because we're not taking him at his word as to who he says he is and what he says he does. I suggest instead we take God at his word that he is who he says he is, that he does what he says he will do. We can have confidence in the resurrection because God cannot but glorify himself. He cannot but completely destroy all his enemies, including death. He cannot but finish what he starts. He cannot but fulfill his promises. That's why we believe in the resurrection. And so we see from the passage so far that what the resurrection means for the Christian and what it means to God. But we can be tempted to put it on the back burner. Well, a resurrection isn't until Christ comes and makes all things new. 
But as Paul shows us, in the lives of the Corinthians, our treatment of the resurrection does and should shape how we live. He answers the question, how should we live in light of the resurrection? Now, so far in the passage, Paul has been providing mainly theological or biblical arguments for the necessity of the resurrection of the dead. But in these final verses of our passage, he turns to reflect on the real-life implications for himself and for the Corinthians. He, needs to, he helps them say, the way that you are living and what you say you believe about the resurrection are not consistent. And if what I'm saying about the resurrection isn't true, then my life is shambles. He, he helps bring the rubber to the road here. And that means we need to deal with verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? If you think you know what that means, I've got a shelf full of biblical scholars who would disagree with you. One scholar noted at least 40 different varieties and opinions as to what this could mean. It makes us uncomfortable. On one hand, because we don't read of this anywhere else with any other church, in scripture or in practice in the early church, it seems odd and it seems weird. So what do we do with it? I think the easiest thing is to take it at its most simple form to mean exactly what it sounds like, that the Corinthians are being baptized, or some of them at least, are being baptized on behalf of the dead. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, we know that they have a strong sense of importance to baptism. They've kind of made it a big deal about who baptized them, and Paul addressed this in the beginning of the latter. They probably have a, a slightly too magical view of what baptism is. We also know that they come from Roman pagan backgrounds, and in that culture, there was a strong sense of connection to the dead, and since a strong sense of dependence of the dead upon the living. And so you find grave sites where there are physical holes into the grave by which they could administer food and drink to the dead for their benefit. And so what is likely happening is that there are Christians who have died without baptism. And there are some Corinthians who think, well, that brother or sister can't enjoy their eternal future properly without baptism, so I'll be baptized on their behalf, just as a Roman neighbor might put food down into a grave to benefit their un un uh, to their dead ancestor. That makes sense because, first of all, if it was an attack on the gospel... Paul would be all over it. He doesn't seem too worried about it. He's not affirming it. But rather, his goal is to say, you have this practice, and you think that somehow by being baptized, you are benefiting your dead brothers and sisters in Christ. If there is no resurrection, what you are doing is foolish because they are beyond help. You are saying one thing and doing one thing that is inconsistent with what you believe. You either need to deny the resurrection and stop doing this, or you need to stop denying the resurrection if you believe that there is actually an afterlife and forgiveness in a relationship with God by which baptism would matter at all. I had to be quick. If you have more questions about that, don't hesitate 
to see me after or later in the week. But Paul is trying to point out that if there is no resurrection, then how can you live as if there is hope in the afterlife? But if there is a resurrection, we are a people of hope. As we've already shown, the resurrection of Jesus as our first fruits of our resurrection should make us people of hope. The not yet of our resurrection should shape the now of how we live. It declares that we are living for uh, that what we are living for is not to be found in present circumstances. In verse 32 he says if the dead aren't ro- risen then eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If this world is all there is, if this is the end of the enjoyment of the physical, of the tangible, of work, of of family, of relationship, of eating and drinking, then we might as well give up hope and just find hope in the present. Because today is all there is to hope for. But if there is a resurrection, then we live with a hope that is not about today, which should cause us to ask, where is our hope placed? We need to be careful where we place our hope. If this is all there is, then we may want to place our hope in present things. We may want to build wealth for our comfort. We may want to build our reputation by doing what others want or expect from us. What does the way you are living now say about what your hope for the future is? One way is to consider our willingness to live for self or for God. Because one of the other implications of the resurrection now is that we live a life of service. And that service can be expressed in a twofold manner, in obedience and sacrifice. First of all, Paul says, stop sinning. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. You can't claim to follow Christ, you can't claim to be a Christian, you can't claim to know things about God if you deny the resurrection and you live in the way that you've been living. The life of a Christian is to be pitied then if there is no resurrection because it is a call to live like Christ. Not only obeying him, but so dying to the self in hope of the resurrection. Paul points to himself. He says, I'm serving in danger. I'm dying to self day after day to serve you with the gospel. If there is no resurrection, why am I fighting the beasts in Ephesus? And he just means the enemies that are physically attacking him, putting his life in danger and in threat as he's writing this letter from Ephesus. And we know he was harshly persecuted there. But because of the resurrection, we can sacrificially serve in God's name. Because of the resurrection, we can die the death of rejection and persecution. We can die to our personal comfort by giving our wealth to those in need. We can die to our desire for vengeance, instead forgiving those who have sinned against us. Without the resurrection, we should be pitied. Because of the resurrection, every cost of following Christ, every taking up of the cross, every death to self, is instead fully and eternally repaid. And so if this is our hope, if this is what we are fighting for, if this is what we are enduring for, the hope of the resurrection of the body, then we need to lastly be on guard as to what and who is shaping us in the now. We need to watch over what and who is shaping our beliefs and practices. In verse 33, excuse me, at the end of verse 32, he said, uh, excuse me, 
Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That's not a Bible passage. That's a Greek play from 300 years earlier. It's like us today quoting Shakespeare. But he quotes that to say, that's a good truth that you aren't even living by while you're allowing your neighbors to actually corrupt you. They've allowed the Roman assumption about the resurrection to shape their beliefs. They've allowed the Roman beliefs about sexuality and what is permissible to find a means to justify themselves through their spiritual views so that they could sleep with a prostitute and claim to still be walking in a way pleasing to Christ. As the Corinthian church has acted like Corinthian pagans, they've become focused on pride of reputation. They've twisted theology to indulge their sexual appetites. They've justified the Lord's Supper as a place to eat and drink in self-indulgence. And so it's no wonder that in wanting to live like their neighbors, they're letting their neighbors' beliefs shape their own beliefs about the resurrection. Who do we let shape our views about God? Is it God's word or neighbors who don't know God? I'm not saying we don't hang out with unbelievers. Paul's not saying that. Otherwise, Jesus would have been disobedient to God. But rather, who are we allowing to be an authority in our life? Are we watching over what they are shaping in us? If the Corinthians could lose sight of the truth of the resurrection of the dead, what could we be distracted? What could we be influenced or persuaded to believe about sin, about salvation, about Jesus? What and who is shaping your belief about God in the Christian life? Is it what God has said in his word? Is it what God has shown us in his son? Or is it something else? Is it in the comfort of your neighbor going camping in the RV every weekend as the height of the good life? Is it advertising in social media that for all of the sexual enlightenment of the day still continues to portray women as sexual objects for the consuming of the male gaze? Is it the vitriol of our political debates shaping your view of your neighbor to see them primarily as an enemy and a threat rather than the object of love and sacrifice as God calls us to? What we believe shapes what we do, and in turn, what we do and who we listen to shapes what we believe. Does the way that we spend our time, the people we allow to influence our views, the literature that we read, does it deepen our hold on the true and the good and the beautiful of God, or does it loosen it or distort it? Are you living as if what money offers, as what advertising says, what this dying world has, is all there is. Basically, I'm asking, will we listen to the GPS of the world around us and say, you have arrived? Reputation, power, sex, money, that's the arrival. If you have those, you've made it. Or do we trust that Jesus has something better for us? Do we press on in hope of salvation, trusting in God, loving service because Jesus died for our sins, because he rose from the dead, confirming the forgiveness of our sins, showed himself to his disciples so that we too could have the glorious future like his. 
I don't think we've arrived yet. So let's press on in faith until we have arrived when Christ comes with the new heavens and the new earth and the last enemy, death destroyed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when we, like the Corinthians, would seek to bring the house down around our own ears, you intervene by your word to warn us and instruct us of the needful truth of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what that means for us. Would we live according to your truth in the hope of the resurrection? Amen.